Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time, we're going to talk about road health. That is, health on the road, not necessarily the health of the roads, because we all know that that's in really terrible shape. We're also going to talk about how to cut straight lines when you're not all that straight. No, wait, that's never mind. I'll figure it out when I get there. And we're going to talk about the Boss Elite Radio, the last Buffalo Roundup, and a stupid story. Well, that was one of the most awkward intros I've ever done, but hey, it's 86 episodes in. Yes, this is episode 86, and heck, I'm just going to let it fly. A few little business items before we get into this here. First and most important, I need to issue a correction and an apology. Because a couple episodes ago, I talked about Goof Off as a chemical that I was trying to use on my van to remove adhesives, and I wasn't very kind to it. Well, I just didn't have good luck with it, but the truth is is that I didn't use it. The product I had wasn't Goof Off, it was Goo Gone, <laughs> which is a totally different product. Goo Gone which is what I used, is a citrus-based product. It's fairly friendly to the environment and your skin, and it smells good and all that, but it's not the same product as Goof Off. So I went and bought some Goof Off, and it worked much, much better than the Goo Gone. So I apologize to the Goof Off company, and um, I don't really apologize to Goo Gone, because I think I've only helped them by demeaning their competition. Bottom line, uh, Goof Off is much stronger and it is also a little harsher. Like, I've noticed that it can kind of take the paint off a little bit. Not anything severe. It's not like I'm getting down to bare metal. But when I pull the cloth away, I can see some paint. So anyway, Goof Off, stronger than Goo Gone. Goo Gone, gentler than Goof Off. And my apologies. Let's get on with it here. Hey, I have had a very rough week since I last talked to you guys. I was in the hospital with a kidney stone. And I will just say that kidney stones hurt a lot. And when you have a kidney stone, there is a sense of urgency that is a little hard to describe. It has been compared to childbirth. I will not do that as I have no frame of reference. But all I can say is... Ouch, you don't want to get these things, and I don't know that there's all that much you can do about it. I know there's 800 different pages that have advice on kidney stones, but they're contradictory, and apparently sometimes it just happens. So, that led me to think, you know, I was at home when this happened, and my wife took me to the ER, and I live in Chicago, so it was only 10 minutes away, which was the longest 10 minutes of my life. But what if I were out on BLM land in Arizona, or, you know, what if I was out in Aurora, Nevada, where I would have had an hour of driving on rutted dirt roads to get back, although that may have loosened the stone, actually. And I started thinking, well, you know, we really need to think about this. I know a lot of van life folks are young and healthy and they don't have a care in the world. And yeah, great. Good for you. But they're not all that way. Some of you are my age. Some of you are older. Not everyone has the same health. And folks, you need to take a step back and say, everything's good now, but what am I going to do if I have a health issue, especially if I'm out in the wilderness? So first, let's talk about basic general health stuff. How do you deal with your doctor? How do you get prescriptions? All that kind of stuff. Well, 
it's a challenge, especially in the U.S. with our really strange healthcare system where we don't have socialized medicine like just about every other country in the world. We have generally a primary care physician that we're tied to, and then we have an insurance company that pays them, but sometimes only them. If we go see another doctor, it costs more. And probably the best way to deal with that is to have a primary care physician, however your insurance is set up, and just see them regularly. Make a plan so that, say, every April, you're going to be in the area where you can visit your doctor. Now, COVID has given us a bit of a gift. Telemed is an actual real thing now. And so, for example, I need to see my doctor for a blood pressure follow-up. I can totally do that. Telemed. You know, I have a blood pressure machine that she recommended. It is of the same accuracy as the one that she would use in the office. And we can actually do this telemed. And I could be, you know, on the edge of the Grand Canyon. And she can be in Chicago. And we can totally do that thing. So you have that option if you can arrange it. But, you know, for some stuff, it's not going to be possible. If you need lab work, that actually is not centralized so much. You may be used to going to the doctor for a physical and they give you a, a blood draw and all that, but you can get those blood draws at any lab, really. There, there's labs just about everywhere. If you find yourself in a situation where you want to do a telemed with your doctor and labs come up, just let them know where you are. The labs can be done locally and then transmitted to them. Now, different hospitals do things differently. In my area, Every single medical system here uses something called MyChart. MyChart is the patient-facing side of the Epic medical record system, which I think most places use at this point. Epic is epic. And this allows you to avoid going to the doctor as often because you can do a lot of communication with the doctor right through the app. For example, I needed to refill a prescription. I was able to use the app and say, hey, I need a prescription. Here's my notes, whatever. And they were able to call in the prescription and I could change which pharmacy in that app. Now, this is an important note and this is something that some folks are going to run into. If you have a scheduled prescription, like maybe you have a prescription for Oxycontin or something, if they even give those out anymore, something like that. Uh, lorazepam is an example. A scheduled drug. Often doctors cannot prescribe them out of state. So that can be a problem. However, nearly every insurance company now does offer prescriptions by mail. So you can have your prescriptions mailed somewhere, and if you have somebody on the land side of things, somebody who's not living in a van who can help you out, you can always mail prescriptions to them, and they can pass them along somehow. There is no simple cut-and-dry answer to these things. It's something you're going to have to figure out. I'm just trying to give you some ideas. And we have to briefly address the seemingly unsolvable problem in this country is what about health insurance? I have a suggestion for those of you struggling to find health insurance that, I, that I'm actually going to put in the resource request part of the podcast. But just a reminder that the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, is still in force. Obamacare, as it's been called, still exists. So you may be able to get coverage through that. And for those of you who are winging it without coverage, well... It's scary because that means any serious illness you have will very likely bankrupt you. It costs an incredible amount of money to visit the hospital and to have medical care. It's just how it is in this country. My visit to the ER for my kidney stone, which involved basically two IVs and a shot of Tordal and a CT scan, 
is probably going to be in the neighborhood of five or six thousand dollars. Now I have insurance. My out of pocket is going to be probably less than a thousand. I'm hoping we'll see, but uh, you know that's the reality. This is a sudden expense that you couldn't possibly have planned for unless you have a big medical buffer. So what do you do if you find yourself needing medical care and you're out in somewhere that you're not even familiar with? Like, what if what if you're in Mexico? Oh, wait, actually, it's easier in Mexico. Seriously, getting health care in Mexico is much easier because it's affordable. You can actually just go to any hospital and get health care and not worry about going bankrupt. It's a fraction of the cost that it is in the U.S. So if you're on the border, yeah, consider getting health care in Mexico. But let's say you have a situation where you need to see somebody. Now, if it's an emergency... Call 911, and that's it. I mean, if you're talking about, you know, something like severe chest pains or you've broken a bone or something, you know, don't mess around. Get the help. Worry about the money later. It is not the most important thing in that circumstance. But if you have a little bit of time, in most communities, there are clinics that will offer health care at a much reduced price. So you can ask around and look for those as well. This is all assuming you know where the health care is. Now, if you're out in the middle of BLM land and you've just driven 15 miles down a dirt road and you broke your ankle, what do you do? I mean, you've got no cell service, right? What you will do now that you're listening to this podcast is make sure that you always know where the nearest medical services are. When I'm doing an operation for Team Rubicon and we set up what we call a FOB, a forward operating base, which is where we stage ourselves to go help people after disasters, we have a form that we filled out. It's part of the national ICS system. I'm getting way too in-depth on this, but, but that form lists all this stuff. Where's the nearest hospital? Where's the nearest police station? All that. What I'm suggesting is that before you camp somewhere, just do a simple Google search of where the nearest hospital is. That can be a literal lifesaver. Be prepared for when something bad happens, what are you going to do? And if you're going way off-road, let's say that you, you're a dirtbagger, which is not a derogatory term. This is somebody who likes to climb rocks and lives in a van. I definitely recommend that you spend the money and get a GPS messaging system. I've talked about these before. They're little GPS devices that can send text messages, and they have a panic button. And they work by satellite, so you can be anywhere outdoors in the world, just about, and get a message that somebody, a rescue person, will have your location and how to get to you. And if you can't afford that, a secondary option, and it's probably not as good an option, but it's not, it's like $50, is a CB radio. Yes, I know, most people use GPRS and FMS radios these days to talk to each other, but there's nobody listening to those. In fact, a lot of the channels you can't even listen on because there are sub-channels and stuff. CBs... There are people still listening to CBs, specifically on Channel 19, which is the biggest public channel, and Channel 9, which is the emergency channel. CB radios don't have a great range. If you're deep in the desert, you're probably not going to reach anybody. But, hey, it's something, and it can't hurt, and, you know, why not? So the, the biggest message I want you to take away from this is that it's easy to ignore health. If you're healthy, you don't think about it, your whole life is just in front of you, but that changes in a moment. Friday night at seven o'clock, I thought I was just going to hang out with my wife and watch some TV, but instead I spent the next 13 hours in the hospital and eight of that was sitting in the waiting room with no pain meds with a kidney stone. That was no fun. So 
plan ahead. Know where your hospital is. Think about what you're going to do if you have various health issues. And if you have an existing health issue, absolutely plan ahead. See if you can get an extra prescription for medications. See if you can plan your travels around your doctor's visits, that kind of stuff. Just make plans. It's your best strategy for dealing with health issues on the road. I have said many times that I am the world's worst carpenter. It's just not in my skill set. I don't know what is wrong with me, but I can't measure to save my butt. I am definitely one of these measure twice, cut three times, and then it's still too short kind of people. It's silly, but it's true. And I am now in a situation where I'm building out this ambulance in the ambulance. So the ambulance is my workshop. And I'm doing it all without shore power. So I have a 1,000 watt inverter in there. It's modified sign, it's, which is what came with the ambulance. I will be replacing that. But it's not enough to power what I use for straight cuts most of the time, which is a, a chop saw, a kind of a big miter saw. That's what I usually use. And my table saw that I gave away, forget it. There was no way that was going to happen. But I just did a project, and I'll have a video up about it uh, probably this week, where I made some countertops, and I needed to be able to cut a 20-inch straight line. Well, last week I reviewed the handsaw that I used, and that works great, but how did I make the straight line with the handsaw? Again, I can't do straight things, and I'm not even gay. If I were, I'd be happy to be, but that's just reality is I don't do straight all that well. So I watched some videos and, and kind of modified what other people had did, and I found pretty good way to make straight lines, and I'm going to share that with you. First thing is to buy a yardstick, the thickest, heaviest duty one you can find. Menards has really good ones for 99 cents. They're very, very heavy. In fact, they're cheaper than a piece of wood that if you had just bought the piece of wood like this, that would actually cost more than 99 cents. So <laughs> I, I actually think you could do a whole van build with Menards yardsticks. And and for those outside the U.S., a yardstick, I mean, do you guys have meter sticks? I don't know. It's just, a, it's just a flat piece of wood that is one yard, three feet long. I assume you guys have meter sticks. Boy, I really hope you do. Anyway, it's great because it, it's about a quarter to a half of an inch thick. And the handsaw can run right along it and make a straight line. But the trick is, well, it's a twofold trick. The trick is you want to clamp it to the piece of wood you're using. So I have two of those hand clamps, the kind you squeeze the triggers on, and that holds it in place. Two seems to be enough. You have to be strategic in how you place them so the saw doesn't hit them, but that has worked really well. And the way I make sure they're square against the wood is to use a speed square. A speed square is a triangle. Yes, it's the world of construction where nothing makes any sense with words. Yes, a speed square is a triangle. I will have a link in the show notes so you can see what I'm talking about. But it's a little, well, they come in different sizes, but it's a triangle that has a lip on one side that makes you make sure things are square. And so you put this down on your board, make sure that lip is flat against one side, and then the line that the one leg of the triangle makes is 90 degrees to the edge, which is what you want. And then you put the yardstick against that, clamp it in place, and voila, you have a straight guide for cutting. And I have been using this with really good success. Honestly, I'm, I'm more accurate this way than I have been with the table saw, which is embarrassing, but it's true, so I'll tell you. Anyway, uh, that's a, just a quick tip for cutting straight lines. Make yourself a fence or a guide using clamps and a piece of wood. And, uh, and I'm able to cut just about anything I want in the van now, which is great. Tales from the road. 
Well, since I'm having somewhat of a self-deprecating episode, I'm going to tell you one of the stupidest things I have ever, ever done. Do not do this. This is dumb. Okay, now that I've said that, I used to be a truck driver. I drove a Mitsubishi Fuso FK or an FM, depending on the day of the week, which is a box truck. It's a cab over box truck. They still make them today. You still see them on the road. And uh, it was a very big box truck. I don't remember how long the box was, but it was like 32 feet or 34 feet. It was bigger than your standard 26-foot box truck. But it was a big truck. And I was 18 when I was driving this thing because back in the 80s, that was how it went. There were so few truck drivers that they were letting basically anybody drive a truck. And I was delivering big rolls of carpet. That's what I was doing. So I would leave Chelsea, Massachusetts every morning and then either drive to Worcester, Mass or out on Cape Cod. And I would alternate day to day. It was actually a fun job. I liked it. And I ended up quitting because I liked it so much that I could see that being the rest of my life. And I actually wanted to do other things. That said... I was an 18-year-old with a massive piece of equipment and not always the most responsible 18-year-old. I never got any serious accidents. I never killed anybody or anything like that. I always drove the speed limit. You know, I, I wasn't completely reckless. But I did occasionally do stupid things like this. Now, these trucks which you have seen, everybody has seen these trucks, have basically what is a garage door on the back. And the trucks are tall, so if that garage door is up, you can't reach the handle to pull it down. So there's usually this big heavy strap that hangs down that you grab and you pull the door down. When you get to the place you're doing a delivery, if they have a loading dock, you carefully back up to the loading dock and then you go around and open the door. But sometimes, and it's annoying, that strap will get stuck between the back of the truck and the loading dock. Now, there was one day I was in a hurry for whatever reason. I think I wanted lunch. It was something stupid. And I went back and tried to open the door, and darn it, that strap was stuck there. Well, I thought, hmm, this is a manual shift truck, which was true. It, it was actually a five-speed, if you can believe that. And it was a very tall truck. It actually took a little bit of time to crawl into the truck. So the key was in the ignition. It was in gear. And I thought, well, if I just tweak the starter, you know, I'm not going to start the truck, but if I just turn the starter for a millisecond, that should cause the truck to jump forward of maybe six inches. And that should allow me to free the strap. And so nonchalantly, I walk up there and I turn the key and the truck jumps forward just like I had planned. And then the engine starts, and the truck starts driving away with me in the parking lot. Now, this is not a good situation, and I did what is perhaps another stupid thing. I chased after the truck, and I caught it, and I climbed into the truck and managed to step on the brake before it smashed into the trees at the end of the parking lot. This was a stupid thing to do, and it was even a stupider thing to do to try to save the truck. But of course I did, and nobody saw me, and I completely got away with it. <laughs> so take this as a lesson that, um, yeah, I don't know what the lesson is, just don't be that stupid. In order to save what was maybe five seconds, I risked my life, the truck, and potentially somebody else's life if there happened to be somebody else there. Oh, it's amazing I lived this long. Product review. 
So my ambulance came with a radio. It's, it's the Sound 5 radio. It's the standard radio that comes in Mercedes Sprinters of, the, of that era. And um, it's kind of crap. I mean, it's a fine radio, but it's literally just a radio and a CD player. No Bluetooth, no aux port. You can get an aux port for it for like 35 bucks, and you have to take the dashboard apart to put it in. I was like, no, I'm not doing that. So I bought a new radio, and I ran across this really strange radio that I have never seen anything like it before. And it's called the Boss, B-O-S-S, Elite, B-E-1-0-A-C-P. What's unique about this is that it's a massive touchscreen radio. And when I say massive, it's 10 inches. It's the size of an iPad. And my first thought when I saw this was, well, okay, that's fun, but it's never going to fit in my dashboard. I mean, it's just way too big. But then I looked more at it, and it uses a single DIN. Now, DIN is the measurement for radios in vehicles. A single DIN means it's a, it's a single radio size slot. Like any car from the 70s or 80s, they all had this one size radio. It was called single DIN. And then double DINs came out, and that was your typical touchscreen will be a double DIN. Printers do have space for a double DIN, but they certainly have space for a single DIN. And that's what this thing used. The screen is floating. It, it kind of is on a stalk, and it pops out in front of the actual radio unit, and you can adjust it any way you want. It goes up and down and left and right, and you can even remove it and put it in the glove box or whatever, and then it looks like you have no radio at all. It's a pretty brilliant solution, especially for folks who have older vans. This thing will fit in just about anything. As for the radio itself, it's a fairly inexpensive radio. I mean, so I wanted a CarPlay stereo here. So in the realm of CarPlay stereos, this thing was about 369 bucks, and that is not bad. And they even have a cheaper one that's only 9 inches, but it's, it's, it's not that much cheaper. Anyway, if you want a CarPlay radio in your van, especially if you have an older van, take a look at this thing. It fit really nicely. Now... I'll have a link in the show notes to Amazon, but I got mine from Crutchfield, and I did need to buy a trim kit, which is true for any of these. And because I have a Sprinter, I had to buy a very odd harness because of the way Sprinters activate their radios. Most cars use 12-volt hot from the battery and 12-volt hot from ignition to turn it on and to save its memory and stuff, but the Mercedes actually uses the CAN bus. So I needed a little box to translate that. But that said, it took me a little while to install it, Everything is fine. It is a halfway decent radio. This is not an audiophile radio by any means. It's just a radio. It does CarPlay. doesn't even have a CD player. But, boy, it fit really nice. So, and, and it's a unique look. I recommend you just take a look at it to see the concept. Also, it has a nice big volume knob, which I really appreciate. That is the Boss Audio Systems Elite BE10ACP. A place to visit. As uh, a few years ago, I hopped in my smart car and decided to finish off my list of visiting all 50 states. I had turned 50, and I had not yet visited the Dakotas. So I drove up to North Dakota and then finally into South Dakota, marking my 50th state. But right at the border of North Dakota and South Dakota, actually in North Dakota, in a small town called Haynes, H-A-Y-N-E-S, I came across one of those roadside signs that I'm always saying, hey, you should stop and look at these. And this one was pretty fascinating. First off, the view is amazing. 
It's right on Route 12, right on the North Dakota-South Dakota border. You can't miss it. It's basically the only big road in the area. And there's a pull-off, and you have this grand vista of this prairie valley. It is quite beautiful. Now, it's in an area filled with quite beautiful things. But still, it's, it's worth just stopping just to see that. But then read the signs. They're kind of tragic. In the 1880s, buffalo had kind of stopped being a wild animal in the U.S. They had been hunted to near extinction. A lot of story behind that, but the bottom line is that uh, William Tecumseh Sherman, after the Civil War, was assigned with the task of dealing with the quote-unquote Indian problem. And using some of the tactics he used in the Civil War, he decided to starve out the Indians. And that meant taking away their food source, and that meant killing all the buffalo. And he was tragically successful in this. And the remaining buffalo in the entire country had basically gathered in this valley near Haines. And then what? A local Indian tribe, consisting of 2,000 Teton Lakota men, women, and children, traveled from Fort Yates to the valley on horseback and killed all the buffalo. They didn't do this out of spite or anger. They did this basically because they wanted to make sure that they got the resources that the buffalo provided. It was the last buffalo hunt in the United States, and it was a tribe of Indians who killed them. But again, there's no judgment in this. They could see the writing on the wall. Buffalo were not going to be a thing in the United States anymore, and they figured, well, they should at least take what they could from the remaining buffalo. It's kind of a sad thing, but it, as you stand there reading the sign, looking over this valley, you can just imagine it. And can you imagine how they felt? They were ending a tradition that had been part of their lifestyle for hundreds of years. And they knew, they knew this was going to be the last time, not only that they would ever do this, but that any of their people would ever do this. One of these striking things you find as you travel around the country and take the time to stop and read the historic markers. If you're ever in this area, and it's a very rural area, it's not too far from Lemon, South Dakota, which is an interesting place to visit. Stop and check this out. You'll see the signs. It's right at the border in the town of Haines, North Dakota. And if you ever do see a buffalo as you're driving by, remember this, it's poignant. Resource recommendation. Hey, I promised earlier I would give you a resource recommendation for health insurance. It's more of an idea. It's something I did in the past. If you are in a situation where you can't find health insurance, which is sadly a situation that a lot of people are afflicted with in the United States, there are ways to get group insurance simply by well, joining a group. There are groups that you can just join. We associate health insurance with our employers in this country, which is archaic, but it doesn't have to be that way. Well, I used to work for America Online, and when I left America Online, I did not have employment. I was taking time away from work, had young kids, we're building a house, all this stuff. So I basically didn't work, but I needed health insurance. So what I did was I created a company, an LLC, and I went to the local Chamber of Commerce and registered with them and became part of the Chamber of Commerce, and that gave me access to insurance. Now, they never checked that my business was viable. There was never any, like, you know, show us how much money you make, and none of that. All they cared was that you registered 
at the Chamber of Commerce, and then you had access to the group insurance. And it was fine insurance. It was the same kind of insurance you would get at a typical employer. Clubs can offer this too. There are some clubs that are big enough that they can offer insurance, and even some churches can do this too. So look for these resources. I am a big fan of the Chamber of Commerce idea. Chambers of Commerce will give you all kinds of other ideas, and you have to look at to where they are. If you don't think of yourself as a business, if you sell something on eBay, you're a business. If you make stickers, you're a business. Heck, if I sold these hook walk up bang stickers for 50 cents, that would be a business. So it might help some of you, and that's why I pass it along. Q&A. What can you run on a modified sign inverter? Saw this question, and I'm literally living this right now. Almost all ambulances come with an inverter. There are outlets everywhere in there, so I don't have to install any outlets. But I'm disappointed that the inverter mine came with is a 1,000-watt modified sign inverter. Now, it's a fairly high-quality one, but it's still modified sign. Backing up a step here, what am I talking about? Well, we're talking about trigonometry. <laughs> We're talking about sine waves. We don't need to get too deep in the trigonometry. All you need to know is household current in the U.S. produces a sine wave. It's alternating current. It alternates between positive and negative, and it does that in a very smooth curve. And if you were to chart that, it would come out as a sine wave. That's just the name for it. But it's hard to produce that when you start with 12 volts DC, and it's cheaper to do what is called modified sine wave. So if you chart a modified sine wave, it is not these smooth curves, it is these jagged curves that kind of look like staircases. And it pretty much works, but it's not great. So let's talk about the differences. Again, don't worry about the technical stuff. All you need to worry about is that there is a thing called modified sine and a thing called pure sine. Pure sine is always better. That's the bottom line. But pure sign is also more expensive. If you have a modified sign inverter already, or if you have a very specific need for 110 volt current, you can get away with a modified sign inverter in some cases. And here are those cases. Basically, if your device that you are trying to plug in has a brick, such as a laptop computer or a television or a gaming system in some cases, or even a 12-volt refrigerator that has a 110-volt brick and you want to use that for some reason instead of the 12 volts, you can get away with a modified sine wave inverter. You can also get away with any kind of lights any kind of incandescent lights, that is. If you have an incandescent light that you absolutely love, you can plug that into modified sign with no problem. It isn't going to work as well with compact fluorescent or in some cases LED. You're going to have to try that out. Modified sign absolutely hates things like induction cooktops, those cooktops that are just a piece of glass and you put a metal pan on, hates those bad. Don't do that. It also hates microwave ovens. In fact, I'm going to have a video coming up in the next couple of days that shows what happens if you use a microwave on a modified sign inverter. You can do it, but it's ugly. It buzzes, it makes noise, it overheats, and, and that's basically the problem with modified sign is it makes your appliance work much, much harder. So if you have a choice, definitely spend the extra money on a pure sign. But if you have a modified sign, it's fine to charge your camera batteries with it and your laptop and stuff like that that's all going to be fine but there are definitely some things that aren't going to work and you know what you can just plug it in and see 
see what happens. You're probably not going to destroy anything in the short term. If you plug something in and it buzzes a lot, don't do that. Or if you plug something in and it just doesn't work, well, then you know why. Well, folks, thank you very much for listening to episode 86. I am always amazed at the nice comments I get, and thank you so much for that. And thank you, everyone, who has given me suggestions for how to remove adhesives. (laughs) I do appreciate it, and I am going to try them all. Music, as always, is by Simon Wag. And until next time, remember the words of Thomas Fuller. Health is not valued till sickness comes.